Well, if you'd open your Bibles back up to 2 Samuel, if you're new with us, we uh, preach our way through books of the Bible, and uh, just section by section, chapter by chapter, and we have been doing 2 Samuel. And one thing I, I said about uh, doing an Old Testament narrative book like this is there's a couple things to keep in mind. One, we just remember the big picture, that it's a story that's part of the big story of the Bible, and I always remember how this is something we look at through our we look at the, the kingdom of David through our King Jesus. Secondly, remember whose shoes you're in. Uh, a lot of times from our Sunday school days, we tend to always want to put ourselves as King David in these stories, but we're, he's, he's pointing us to Jesus. We're much more like the Israelites sitting underneath him. And third, remember to read it in big sections. It's big stories. If we try to break it down too small, we tend to miss the point. Thus, uh, we have a whole chapter this morning that seems quite long, but we'll see the themes as we go through it. We won't be looking at every detail, but we'll see the big point. So we're up to chapter 3 this morning. Now one of the best things about Christianity is that Christ, our King, our Savior, in a sense the leader of our religion, is not like us. One of the best things about Christianity is that Jesus, although he became one of us, took on flesh, became human, is actually not like us Christians who claim his name. You may hear that and say, well, wait a minute. I thought Christians were supposed to emulate Jesus, to be Christ-like in our actions and our deeds. And that is very true. But the truth is we fail miserably. This is why we need him. This is why we follow him. This is why we depend on him. This is why we pray to him. This is why we worship him. Because he is not like us. You see, when people reject Christianity because they've known some Christians or some Christian person that wasn't very nice or, and had issues and was a hypocrite, and it's definitely no different from them, they are missing the point. That's like saying, you know, I really hate Michael Jordan because I've met some kids who wear his jersey and they are terrible at basketball. It just doesn't follow. If you're considering Christianity this morning, you're not a Christian and, and, and you're looking into it, you should understand that it is about Christ it's actually not about his followers. And don't get me wrong, Christians should be and often are good and decent people, but we are forgiven sinners who fall well short of Jesus Christ, our King. And our actions generally speak a lot more about us than they do about him. Our King and Savior is not like us and that is really good news. And actually, I think it's the main point of our text today. See, what we can't miss in 2 Samuel chapter 3 is the obvious contrast between David, the king, and his men. The extreme contrast between the character and actions of David, the king, God's leader, and the men who serve him. Last week in chapter 2, 
the text zeroed in on the actions of David's main commander, Joab, and his army. And we saw that he was a man of action who was dead set on advancing David's kingdom through manpower, as Jay called it. Man-centered war and politics and ambition and vengeance. He, he faced the encroachment of Abner, the commander of uh, Ishbosheth, Saul's uh, son's army, with, with this macho brute force. First, there was that kind of Thunderdome scene that Jay showed us last week around the Pool of Gibeon where Joab lined up his army against Abner's army on the other side and they said, send out your 12 best. They sent out their 12 best men to kind of decide this thing. And of course, they just grabbed each other and stabbed each other and they all died. Just these stupid, morbid, hopeless deaths. And that just devolved into an all-out battle and brutal violence where Jewish brothers are slaughtering each other in the midst. And in the midst of it, Abner thrusts his spear into the belly of Joab, the other commander's little brother, Azahel's. He thrust it into him because Azahel was fast as a gazelle and he couldn't get away. And when Azahel fell, everybody paused at his body. It was a dramatic moment which sealed this deep rift. And now Joab is out for blood to the end. And by the end of chapter 2, nothing is solved. There's only death and loss, and both camps are hopelessly entrenched on their sides. Joab and his men at Hebron, and Abner and his men at Mahanaim, And neither has made ground. There is no peace. There's just this stalemate of futility and death. Which brings us to the first verse of our text. Chapter 3, verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. It just devolved into this long war. And we don't know if it was more of a cold war with just a lot of talk and posturing on both sides or if there was actually a lot of you know, battles and skirmishes on the border. Probably some of both. But what we do know is that the ways of manpower, ambition and violence and scheming just continue. First, we, we see it with Abner. Look at verse uh, 6 of our text. This is what it says. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Hai. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Abner, during this war, is, is making himself strong. He's striving to bolster his own power and position. And how does he do it? Well, by taking one of Saul's concubines, Rizpah. You see, Saul's concubines had been passed on to Ishbosheth, the inheritor of his throne, even though he's kind of a puppet king. 
So Abner goes after one of his own king's concubines. And this was a big deal. In those days, to go after a king's concubine was considered an assault on his very position. You'll see Absalom make exactly the same move on David in, in, in chapter 16 when he's trying to take over. It's kind of a sideways coup attempt. And if you read carefully, I don't know if you noticed in the story, but when he's confronted about it, he doesn't deny it. He just gets outraged. What are you calling me, a dog, he says? How can you accuse me of this, this uh, assault concerning a woman? But he doesn't deny it. Probably, and he actually uses it as an opportunity to say, you know what? I'm going to go over to David's kingdom. I'm going to go over and be with David. Probably because he sees that David's strength is growing and he, and he wants to be on that side of things. Abner is making political moves for his own interests and power. But of course we see such manpower action continues with Joab as well on the other side of things. Because later when Abner is in the midst of brokering a peace deal with David and all seems to be going well, Joab intervenes with his own vindictive interests. We jump ahead a little for a minute to verse 26 and it says this. When David came out from Joab's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know it about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately, and there he struck him in the stomach, so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Joab gets his vengeance, taking out Abner with a sword through the stomach, just like he had done to his brother. So the ambition and power and violence, the ways of man to build a kingdom, just continue into chapter 3, don't they? Bringing only more bloodshed and only more fertility and more hopelessness. But what we can't miss in this chapter is that in the midst of this, David starts to emerge. Last chapter, Jay pointed out, through all those battles, we didn't hear anything about David at all. And at the beginning of these chapters, we don't hear much about David. But as all this goes on, David starts to rise in this chapter, and his actions are nothing like these men. In fact, they're the complete opposite. And this is highlighted in the very last verse of the text. Look at it, verse 39. It says, and I was gentle today, this is David speaking, and I was gentle today, though anointed king. Though I'm king, I was gentle. These men, the sons of Zerah, that's his men, Joab, Abishai, Naziel, they are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. David God's true king, unlike his men, is gentle. With all the violence we have seen thus far, it's almost a shocking word. Gentle. We see brutality and vengeance and bloodshed. And David, he was gentle. It almost sounds weak. 
But look at verse 1 again, if you think it's weak. Because look, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger. This chapter begins with David's growing strength and ends with the statement that he is gentle. Unlike his men, he is gentle. So what does this mean? What is this strength and gentleness that actually builds God's kingdom? As kingdom workers today, which is what we are, by the way, this is crucial for us to think about and see. Because manpower hasn't gone away. And people, Christians, are still trying to build God's kingdom with it. Everything from the, from the inquisitions and the holy wars to the ruthless business practices that you see in the church to evangelical power politics in our culture, it's all manpower. But God's kingdom is grown and strengthened in gentleness. His king is gentle, unlike his men. So what does this scene teach us about the nature of this gentle strength? What does it mean? What does it look like to be followers of a gentle king? Well, I want us to notice a couple things, a couple aspects of David's gentle strength. And the first is patient endurance. Trusting in God's sovereignty. This isn't something that's stated in the text. It doesn't say, and David was patient. But it, it's implicit throughout. You see, when, <clears throat> when the um, first verse says, and the house of David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker, how is that so? How is it that he grew stronger and stronger? Did, did David raise up a great army over time? Were people defecting from Ispaseth's kingdom, Saul's kingdom? So over time, David went from one tribe to two tribes to three tribes. Is he growing stronger like that numerically, expanding his borders? No, look, look at the next verse. The sons were born to David at Hebron, and sons were born to David at Hebron. His first was Amnon. And then it goes on, and I won't try to read through all the names. Brian did a great job. <laughs> in fact, the next verses, in these next verses, we see six sons were born over seven years to six different wives while he lived in Hebron. Now, that's not exactly exciting, glamorous growth, is it? Talk about slow going. But it's God's sovereign work. That's what he's saying there. He's saying David's dynasty grew. God was expanding it. Year one, still in Hebron, with Philistines, Hebron I should say, with Philistines everywhere. But there's one more son. Year two, still in this little town. No new territory. 
but there's another son. Year three, still in the backwater little Hebron town, but another son. Year four, the same. Year five, more of the same, except in year five, that's when Abner has defected and set up a rival kingdom, grabbing 12 of the tribes. It's painful, slow growth. It's so painful and slow that David's men can't take it anymore. And that's when Joab decides to take action and go out and start battle. He's going to grow the kingdom by sheer force manpower. He's going to make it happen. But as we saw last week, David, he wasn't with him. He seems to be content to rest in God's plan, to not step ahead, to endure through the apparent slowness and the littleness of the work. Reminds me of the, the parable of the farmer sowing his seed in the ground and every day goes out and he just sees dirt. Nothing, 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 nothing. But under the surface, things are happening. Things are happening that are big, that one day will bring a great harvest. But he must patiently endure. In this scene, God is doing his work. He is growing and strengthening David's kingdom, one baby at a time. And interestingly, he's working on the other side of things because it says Saul's kingdom grew weaker and weaker. It's specifically referring to his dynasty, that he didn't have progenitors. Things were beginning to devolve even in the relationships as Abner moves against Ishbosheth. Now, this patient endurance of David is, is not new. We saw it in, in 1 Samuel when he was on the run from Saul, and he could have killed Saul 11 times, and he would not step ahead of God's plan. And it was painful. You read through it, and you think, just kill him. But he wouldn't step ahead of God's plan. He acted in faithfulness and righteousness and patience, not expediency. And our passage ends on this idea when it highlights David's patient gentleness in contrast to his severe men. We find David saying this. Look at the very end of verse 39. He says, The Lord repay the evildoers according to his wickedness. David is patient with God's justice. He doesn't need to act now for his own retribution. Unlike Joab, he will leave that to the Lord in his time. He will endure injustice and wait on God. My friends, gentle strength that wins the day that builds God's kingdom starts with a patient endurance that rests in God's sovereignty. That's the nature of our King Jesus, isn't it? As he patiently endures the road to the cross, as he still patiently endures the world's ongoing sin and rebellion, waiting that all should repent, wishing that none should perish. It's the call of the church as we go out with the gospel, isn't it? If you remember uh, in the book of Revelation, when we went through Revelation, what was the constant reminder, the constant call? It was the theme of the book. Chapter 1, verse 9 of Revelation, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus Christ. 
And then he basically said it to every church. Verse 2 to the church at, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, the church at Ephesus, he says, I know your work, your toil, and your patient endurance. To the church at Thyatira, I know your work, your love, and your faith, and your service, and your patient endurance. These are the churches that he says will conquer. Patient endurance. This is so hard. We are so not, I mean, not like David, so much like his men. We want to take action, manpower, action, and often we leave righteousness in our wake, right, as we take on the ways and means of the world. Now, there's another aspect of David's gentle strength that we see here, and it's a little more explicit, I've, I've, and I've called it peace-seeking vulnerability, David bravely seeks peace with his brothers that are against him, even if it means making himself vulnerable. He seems to have this gentle, peaceful vulnerability. We see this uh, displayed as Abner comes to make a deal with him after he's betrayed Ishbosheth, and now he's over there to make a deal with David. Look at verse 12. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, to whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. So Abner comes, and he doesn't really come in, in surrender and humility, does he? He comes thinking he holds the power. He's, he's making a power move. He says to David, to whom does the land belong? You, you know what he's saying there, right? I've got 11 tribes. Who's really got the power here, David? Who's really got the land? Look what I can bring you, David. Right? That's what he's saying. It's interesting. These, these words sound like the words of uh, Yahweh here, right? To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you. To bring over Israel to you. Doesn't that sound like Yahweh? He's got a definite complex here of he's in control. He's at the top. Positioning himself to be powerful in David's kingdom. Because he's the one who can de deliver. So the shocking thing is David's immediate answer. Verse 13. David says... Uh, and it says, and he said, good, I will make a covenant with you. Right? You read that, and you go, David just is quick to that. He, he wants to make peace. He wants to unite God's people. So he's like, hey, let's, let's do this. But as a reader, you, you naturally are like, whoa, whoa, David. Don't, don't trust this guy. He's probably up to no good. In fact, that is... What Joab says to David later after he realizes David has met with Abner and, and kind of negotiated things and then let Abner go. Look at verse 24. This is Joab's response. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner the son of Nair came to deceive you. 
and to know your goings out and your coming in and to know all that you are doing. He says to David, how could you be so stupid? He just came to spy on you, to learn the workings of your kingdom so he can report back to Ishbosheth and they will have the upper hand. How could you let him go? You had him. And you know what? The simple manpower level, such vulnerability is really stupid. If, if, if you just want to rule in power, that is not smart what David did. But David is seeking peace. He wants to unite his kingdom to bring the brothers back and sisters back together. So he's willing to put himself out there in a vulnerable position. But it's not really a stupid vulnerability because back to verse 13, remember what David said. And he said, good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, daughter when you come to see my face. Very interesting, isn't it? He demands, as a marker of this covenant, that they give him back Michael, Saul's daughter, his first wife, who he paid a, quite a price for, you'll see there, because Philistines don't give those up easily. <laughs> now, this seems initially a little romantic, right? And perhaps it is, perhaps there's that's going on, but I think there's something more going on here. Michael had been wrongly taken from David by Saul against her will. When she had helped David escape, uh, and, and when he fled from Saul, Saul had kept her and he had given her to another man, poor uh, Patil, or however you say his name. To hand her back will be an acknowledgement by the house of Saul of David's rights. It will be to say that they've been wrong in their opposition to David. It will be a fundamental turnabout around of their position and attitude towards David. You see, to put it simply, it will be an act of repentance towards David as king. This is why David doesn't just demand this from Abner in verse 14, the very next verse, he demands this action from Ishbosheth himself. The actual leader and king of Saul's dynasty must hand her over. And interesting, this, this repentance happens in a sense, at least on Abner's end of the deal. Because you look at, uh, at verse 18, it says, Now then, Bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of the enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin, and then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. So Abner confers with all of Israel's elders and he brings them together and they confer that this is 
the right thing. He acknowledges, they all acknowledge, that David is God's Savior King that's meant to save his people. And all the tribes come on board with this. So David receives Abner and throws this feast. We see that in verse 20, this feast of covenant to welcome Abner and his men. And why does David do that? Because of Abner's stellar past record? No. Because of his clear integrity? No, we still don't trust this guy. He receives him out of his own vulnerable, generous grace. He receives him so as to make peace for his people, even if it means his own sacrifice. And that's what begins to happen in the text, if you read. You, you can't miss the emphasis. Abner brings all of the people around. Look at, uh, let's see here, look at verse 21. Let's read it. The end of it. We'll just get to it. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. After they've negotiated, after they've come before David, there's this covenant feast, and he sends Abner away in peace. Then look at the end of verse 20, uh, 22. For he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. The end of verse 23. And he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. It's emphasized over and over and over again. David is brokering peace. Something big is happening here. A real peace. A repentance-based union of brothers as they submit to their gracious, vulnerable, true king. This is the gospel, my friends. This is the way our king, Jesus, brings peace. Our king who said, my peace I give to you, not as this world gives, do I give to you. It's a peace that starts this way, as we're made right before our God king, and then it moves this way. It begins to reconcile our relationships this way. That's what's happening. This real peace can never happen through manpower. Through mankind's ways of trying to build a kingdom with force and violence and pride and vengeance, which just brings an endless cycle of futility and death. Which is, of course, what Joab illustrates, right? As he undercuts the whole thing by immediately murdering Abner out of a need for his own personal vengeance. As Abner goes back to his people to work out the practicalities of this new peace, that's when he's intercepted by Joab, who has this manpower secret message for him and gives him a knife in the belly. King David is not like his severe men. He is gentle and strong He's a king who seeks patience, who seeks peace through patience and endurance and vulnerable engagement and self-sacrifice. And think about the applications of this. Think about the applications of this relationally. Think of the peace in your own marriage, in your own families, 
Can you patiently endure waiting on God's timing and work in the other person and in you? Can you step out and be vulnerable when you're in self-protection mode? Or do you just find yourself maneuvering to get the power position? Can you be gentle? Think corporately. Can we be patient with each other? Can we engage with each other during these trying times for the sake of peace and unity? Can we be gentle? Think about it as a church relating to the world for the gospel as we sense the the growing ideological and ethical divide between us and our culture, are we going to retreat into the safety of isolation in our little Christian group and use politics to demand some sort of justice for our cause? Or are we going to step out in vulnerable faith and move towards the world, striving to engage like our Savior King, entering into this world of sin? Are we going to be patient when things aren't going our way, trusting in our God's sovereignty? Are we going to be gentle as we engage with the world? And this brings me to the final character of this gentle king. And I think it's the one that kind of makes it all work, the the thing that brings it together, the thing that really makes for real peace, and that is simply true brotherly love. This king has true brotherly love. The most amazing thing in this story is what David does just after his commander, Joab, murders Abner right when he had made peace out of his need for vengeance and self-justice. Look at what David does, verse 31. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. That's the, the, the coffin, in a sense, as they marched it through. They buried Abner at Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. David calls for national mourning. And he commands Joab himself, the one who murdered him, to tear his clothes and lament. Which I'm sure he found humiliating. And he calls all the people of Israel to mourn, and they do. David, as he did with Saul and Saul's death, sees all that was lost in Abner. He sees the potential glory of his life. He calls him a prince and leader, a great man. He sees what he could have been, and he weeps because this man in all his sin and rebellion was his brother. He was, he was one of them. Abner's just like Joab. He's just like the other men. He's actually their brother. And David has this empathy that comes alongside, that doesn't condemn from above, but enters in and sees the good and the tragedy of this loss, and he weeps. I can't think but help, uh, help but think of Jesus as he's filled with compassion before those lost crowds, the ones that want to kill him. He says they're like sheep without a shepherd, and he weeps. I can't think but help of him 
uh, help, sorry, but think of him as he's ascending and he, and he calls us his brothers in Hebrews 2 or Hebrews 1. My friends, as we look out at the world, the lost world that is living in defiance of our King Jesus and his kingdom, setting up their kingdoms in opposition, do we see brothers and sisters who are lost and mourn? Or do we see enemies that we hate? Like Joab and Abner mirroring each other, do we realize we're looking at ourselves? And do we have a true brotherly love that, that desires reconciliation of relationship more than self-protection and justice? I don't think it comes naturally to do this. It doesn't for me. And our, our political climate isn't helping it. Yet this is what ultimately makes for peace. This is what really builds the kingdom of God. And the good news for Israel is their king has this love. This true brotherly love for his people. He's not like his men. And the people start to see it. After David mourns for Abner, look at what it says in verse 36. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them as everything that the king did pleased them. The word pleased carries this idea of, it could be translated, and was, it was good in their eyes. They saw their king, they saw what it was like, and he, and he was good. They have a good king who's not really like them or, or any king they've ever had. He is a gentle king. He is patient and vulnerable and loving. He brings a kingdom of real peace. This is the hope for Israel. As against all that manpower which just led to fertility and death. They have a gentle king. And it is the hope for us. Jesus in the New Testament only describes his heart one time. He only describes the very core of who he is one time. There's no other description. It's in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Real peace. Our king is not like us. And that is good news. But we need to strive to be like him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. And the wonderful way that, it, that you show us truth in a way that comes alive, truth lived out in people's lives so that we can know it and, and, and feel it. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to go forth from here and live it. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.